Welcome to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guests today are both from the University of California, San Francisco, where Dr. Madonna Khalili is a professor of medicine, and Dr. Michelle Tana is an assistant professor of medicine. And they're with us to discuss how clinicians can better identify patients' barriers to hepatitis B treatment and what they can do to help overcome them. Eviral Hepatitis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and AbbVie Incorporated. Learning objectives for this audio program include describe factors that may contribute to a patient's attitudes about HBV testing and care, and explain potential barriers and solutions to improve HBV care in the peripartum setting. Dr. Khalili has disclosed that she has performed contracted research as a principal investigator for AbbVie Pharma, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Intercept Pharmaceuticals. She has also disclosed that she has received consulting fees from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Dr. Tana has disclosed that she has no relationships with any product or service relevant to today's discussion. Both doctors have indicated that they will not be referencing the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products. Dr. Tana and Dr. Khalili, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. In your recent newsletter issue, doctors, you analyzed the current literature explaining why individuals with hepatitis B infection or individuals at risk for hepatitis B infection may be unwilling to be screened for HBV, begin treatment for HBV, or adhere to HBV management regimens. What I'd like to do today is talk about how that new information can be applied to clinical practice. So if you would please, Dr. Khalili, start us out with a patient scenario. Absolutely. So this is a 48-year-old man who immigrated from Senegal five years ago and recently tested hepatitis B surface antigen positive. He has undergone the hepatitis B testing and monitoring you've recommended, but he's reluctant to inform his immediate family and household contacts that they should also be tested for hepatitis B and treated if their results are positive or vaccinated if they're not infected. Give us a sense of perspective, Dr. Tana. What does the evidence say about HBV risk factors for patients like this man? Well, Bob, chronic hepatitis B is very common worldwide. And as you saw in the NHANES study that we referenced in the newsletter, the prevalence of chronic hepatitis B among non-Hispanic Blacks in the United States was found to be 0.64%. And that is significant because it's approximately four times higher than the rate in non-Asian non-Blacks. And almost 9% of non-Hispanic Blacks in the study were previously exposed to the hepatitis B virus, and only a quarter of them had vaccine-induced immunity to the virus. So while there were not large numbers of non-Hispanic Blacks in the study, none of them were actually aware of their chronic hepatitis B infection. Thank you, Dr. Tana. Dr. Khalili, this patient, as you said, was reluctant to inform his family that they should be tested for hepatitis B and treated if necessary or vaccinated. We know this reluctance to share information is a common barrier. What do we know about why? Well, Bob, we know that each patient's health behavior is really shaped by the kind of influences they've had in their lives, including their own perceptions and understanding, their cultural influences, the environment they live in their access to healthcare services and health insurance, and of course, importantly, their provider recommendations and the relationship they have and the way they communicate with their provider. 
And broadly, there are other issues such as healthcare system limitations and standard of care practices that are not necessarily related to the patient, but nevertheless influences the patient behavior. In a study that was presented in the newsletter by Mukhtar and Al, we also learned that provider knowledge and their perceived barriers towards hepatitis B testing and care also played a critical role in management of their patients. We should also remember that fear of disclosure of the results and worry about the reactions they may have with their actual results also can influence patient behavior. Of course, we can't forget the issue of stigma that can exist within our community and lack of knowledge of these conditions that need to be overcome and represent limitations in access to care. So what the data seem to be showing is that an overall lack of knowledge about HBV, about the nature of the disease, about who may be infected, about HBV prevalence in the local community, these seem to be directly related to patient resistance to considered testing and engaging in care. I agree with you, Bob. The NAME study that we referenced earlier showed that 74% of individuals who are chronically infected with hepatitis B in the United States aren't even aware of the infection. And the Bolotayo paper conducted focus groups with leaders of African communities in New York. And what they found was that even these community leaders weren't aware of the high prevalence of chronic hepatitis B in African countries. They also lacked knowledge about modes of transmission and infectivity of the virus. And they also really appreciated the focus groups because they were able to learn about the silent nature of the disease. That paper also did pre and post tests before and after the education programs were implemented. And they found that the scores on the pre-test were about 70% and on the post-test, 88%. So that shows that there's definitely room for improvement in terms of level of knowledge. So what should providers do, Dr. Khalili, to better help educate their at-risk patients? Well, in the study that was presented by Chu and colleagues, Educational materials that were provided to the patients in their language of origin was certainly effective. And other studies have shown that establishing an educational program has a significant influence, as already has been discussed. In a study by Mukhtar Arnal as well, other factors came up to be also significantly important that were related really to providers and the practices within which they worked, including the demographics of their patients and practices, as well as their own demographics and perceived barriers to hepatitis B screening. There were also important gaps in provider knowledge of guidelines and adherence to these guidelines that were identified And so I think that improving provider education and recognizing that they have their own perceived barriers to hepatitis C care, as well as competing priorities that may prevent them from practicing within those guidelines are really significant and important. Broadly disseminating these practice guidelines are also going to be critical And quality improvement measures within provider practices, such as adherence to these guidelines, can also provide providers with an incentive to follow the recommendations where these measures are set up in the practice. Dr. Tana, a closing thought? I think one important thing for providers to do is just to take a step back and realize that many patients aren't even aware of their infection, and then they can start helping the patients to build knowledge from there. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. 
and we'll return with Dr. Mandana Khalili and Dr. Michelle Tana from the University of California, San Francisco, in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. Eviral Hepatitis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with viral hepatitis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for eViral Hepatitis Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about eViral Hepatitis Review, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. Welcome back to this eViral Hepatitis Review podcast. We've been speaking with Drs. Mandana Khalili and Michelle Tana from the University of California, San Francisco, about the clinical aspects of improving hepatitis B care by identifying and overcoming the barriers to hepatitis B treatment. So let's continue in that clinical vein as we focus on our second learning objective, improving HBV care in the peripartum setting. So if you would please, Dr. Tana, start us out with a patient presentation. Sure, Bob. This next case is a 22-year-old woman who's 26 weeks pregnant and was diagnosed with chronic hepatitis B during her first trimester of pregnancy. Managing HBV in pregnancy. What do clinicians need to be more aware of? Uh, Break it down first, Dr. Khalili. Well, Bob, there is a few things to consider. The first thing is for us to really be sure that we know that the guidelines recommend universal hepatitis B testing of pregnant women in their first prenatal visit if the hepatitis B status of that woman is unknown. In the case that the mother status is known and is infected with hepatitis B, the mother should then undergo evaluation for assessment to see if they meet the standard criteria for antiviral therapy. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about the standard criteria for hepatitis B therapy and what is it based on? Sure, Mandana. So there are standard criteria for assessing the mother's need for HPV therapy using her ALT level and HPV DNA levels. However, if the mother doesn't meet these criteria for initiation of HPV therapy, next, the risk of mother-to-child vertical transmission should be assessed. In transitioning to evaluation of the risk of mother-to-infant vertical transmission, we then assess the hepatitis B viral levels at the end of the second trimester, at which time we determine if the levels are above 10 to the 5 international units per milliliter, that the woman should consider initiation of hepatitis C therapy with tenofovir at the third trimester. And this treatment should continue until birth or up to one month post-birth. But it should also be noted that once the medication for hepatitis C therapy is discontinued, that the woman has to be closely monitored for flares of hepatitis, which is certainly a risk factor following discontinuation of therapy. Postpartum, what treatment should the infant receive? The infants should also receive hepatitis B vaccine and hepatitis B immunoglobulin fusion all at birth and as soon as possible following birth within 12 hours of birth. And then the hepatitis B vaccination in the infant should continue with the full series at one and six months post-birth. 
If the infant's weight is less than 2,000 grams at birth, a fourth dose of vaccine is also recommended, but not before six months of age. And of course, the HBIC should be given at a different injection site than the vaccine site. The infant should also then be tested for hepatitis B surface antigen levels at 9 to 12 months of age to ensure that there has not been a transmission of hepatitis B infection. The potential barriers to ensuring that this woman and her child get the HBV care they need. Uh, Dr. Tana, what are those likely to be? Bob, that's a great question. There are a lot of different factors that can influence a patient's willingness to receive hepatitis B care, including patient factors, provider factors, and healthcare system factors. We already discussed some societal and cultural barriers earlier. Frequently, patients are reluctant to initiate HBV therapy during pregnancy. They may not have knowledge about the risk of transmission of hepatitis B virus to their infants. So, Mandana, what other concerns have you encountered in taking care of pregnant women with hepatitis B? Well, I think another concern that comes up quite a bit is regarding the mother's fear of breastfeeding after taking TDF. And it it should really be noted that the AASLD guidelines currently do not prohibit breastfeeding when this medication is taken. And that should be emphasized with the mother. That's a really great point. And then, you know, the Massey article that we reviewed in the newsletter showed that even though there's a policy of universal HPV vaccination for infants, the actual rate of vaccination is still well under 100%. So in that study, some unique maternal factors were associated with receipt of the HPV birth dose vaccine. So a maternal age less than 35 years and not using illicit drugs during pregnancy were associated with receipt of that first dose. Other barriers relate to the provider, including lack of knowledge about management guidelines or their own perceived barriers to HPV management, like access to specialty care referrals and the initiation of HPV therapy within their practice. What about healthcare system issues? How might those interfere with the ability of this woman and her child to receive proper and effective HPV care? Dr. Khalili? That's a really good question. As was discussed in the newsletter, having a lack of pre-printed admission orders or specifically hospital policies in place could certainly influence this woman's care. Other factors may include days of the week where the baby is born, type of birthing facility, having a medical versus non-medical birth attendant, as well as lack of access potentially to specialty care in order to provide that linkage to care as needed. Other types of things such as lack of quality of systemic measures to ensure that birth dose vaccination and HBIG infusion is initiated in a timely manner also play a significant role. Right. And I just want to add that there may be a lack of system measures to ensure that the birth dose vaccination and HBIG are given. So that's another concern. That's a very good point, Michelle. Uh, Doctors, just for the purposes of this discussion, right now, rightly or wrongly, let's put all the onus on the healthcare providers. What can they do to improve the chances that their pregnant patients and their infants are more likely to get appropriate HBV care? Get specific for us, if you would, please, Dr. Tana. That's a great question. I think, Bob, that the providers can start by educating their patients 
and letting the patients know that they play a big role in the care that they receive and to some extent need to advocate for themselves too. Providers can also work on educating themselves and implementing measures in their practices to identify and refer patients appropriately for HPV care. Mandana, what is your experience with this? I think what you mentioned actually brought up a very important point about the familiarity of the providers with hepatitis C guidelines that are currently in practice. Right. And providers should be aware that the birthing facility in which their patients have the baby, as well as the provider that they use during the birth, may matter. Providers can also realize that the birth dose of the HPV vaccine cannot be taken for granted. It's not always given. And providers can also look into their own hospital's policies and order sets for birth admission. Thank you both, doctors, for bringing us today's cases and discussion. I've got one last question for you, and it's future-oriented. In your expert opinion, where does the new research need to focus to best help clinicians overcome the barriers to providing better care to individuals with HPV infection? I know that's a pretty big overall question. Your response, Dr. Khalili? Well, I think that it's likely that certain barriers in time will diminish, but we will also face new barriers. Importantly, disseminating specialty guidelines within the primary care setting and other practices that are relevant with regards to hepatitis C management does remain quite challenging and likely require engagement of stakeholders, including primary care providers, in the development and update and also implementation of these guidelines within their setting. Culturally sensitive discussions within practices will remain challenging, but can certainly be enhanced by in-language education programs and patient-centered approaches that are currently being tested or already being implemented in different settings. I also think that future research on exploring efficacy of various interventions, such as formal patient education that have been implemented in other settings, including hepatitis C infection, implementation of automated order sets, programs to encourage testing and vaccination of relatives and household contacts will become critical in engaging patients in hepatitis B and linkage to care. Michelle, what other areas do you think is important with respect to research? I think certainly more research is needed to look at health system factors and provider barriers that can stand in the way of appropriate HPV care. And that's absolutely true. And I would also add that as concerns about hepatocellular carcinoma continues to be a problem in U.S., we also would need future research to determine challenges that exist currently with respect to adherence to regular liver cancer screening and the barriers to such screening, as well as liver cancer therapy. Thank you for sharing your insights, doctors. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaway messages in light of our learning objectives. So our first learning objective, the factors that may contribute to patients' attitudes about HPV testing and care. Dr. Tana? There are many factors that can contribute to a patient's attitudes, but providers should consider the patient's background. So what's their country of origin? How long have they been in the United States? And what is their primary language? As well as attitudes about HPV disease based on cultural influences. I'd like to also add that we should consider patients' social situation as well, such as the socioeconomic background, their social support that they may be receiving from their family and friends. 
Definitely. And providers should consider their patients' level of knowledge and awareness about HBV, its modes of transmission, its natural history, and consequences. Let me just sum it up. I think that the providers should familiarize themselves with established and available HBV guidelines and attempt to identify ways in their practices to facilitate implementing the testing and vaccination for hepatitis B. And then also provide and facilitate referral to a specialty care if needed for managing their patients with hepatitis B infection. And our other learning objective, the potential barriers and solutions to overcome those barriers to improve HBV care during and after pregnancy. Dr. Khalili? In fact, we should be sure to consider the mother's indication for hepatitis B therapy based on their own disease and standard criteria and also the risk of mother-to-child transmission of hepatitis B if that is not prevented using TDF. We also should realize that there is gaps in universal birth dose vaccination for hepatitis B and pay attention to ensure that all infants receive vaccination. We should also recognize that maternal birth and hospital factors are associated with receipt of these birth dose vaccination and hepatitis B prophylaxis when indicated, and really try and identify ways to overcome these barriers. From the University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Mandana Khalili, Dr. Michelle Tana, thank you for participating in this eViral Hepatitis Review podcast. It was a pleasure to be here. This has been great. Thank you so much, Bob. For eViral Hepatitis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eviralhepatitisreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eViral Hepatitis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME and CE credit emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, OBGYNs, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and nurses, and other clinicians diagnosing or managing patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuous nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute of Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eViral Hepatitis Review via email, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. 
eViral Hepatitis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and AbbVie Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.